Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. Thanks for doing this, Mike. Oh, I'm happy to do it. I think it's long overdue. I, I actually really enjoy the podcast, too. So, oh, Thanks. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself for the benefit of the audience. Okay, well, I am the squid guy at the Smithsonian, which sounds like I work for the Smithsonian Institution, but I actually work for NOAA, the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and they pay me to work at the Natural History Museum in Washington, where I am the curator of cephalopods, which includes squids and octopods and other weird kinds of things, and also of pteropods, which are swimming snails, which are also strange, and I really like strange things. What's your favorite out of those three? Oh, squids. I, I've always liked squids. So I think we should put down the rules of engagement because of everything we've talked about in the last few months about squid. We have to acknowledge that Mike does know about other animals. <laughs> but for the, for the purpose of this episode, we're going to stick to the squid. Okay. Which brings me to my next question, right? And this is something that I actually meant to ask you this, but I didn't want to because I was too embarrassed in case I came across this sounding a bit stupid. But the word squid, is that actually a valid term? Or is it just one of those lazy names... And what is the actual real taxonomic name for squid? It's one of those lazy names. There's lots of things that are called squids. And even the squid scientists can't seem to agree on, on what's a squid and what's not a squid. So as far as I'm concerned, squids refer to the oceanic squids or the members of the egopsida, as it's called. And maybe the coastal squids, which are myopsids and include things like Lalago and Dory Toothis, which are really important commercial species. All of those are kind of squid looking. They have a long body that shapes sort of like a fish's body, but it's got uh, fins at one end and it's got uh, an arm crowned at the, the other end, which consists of eight arms and two modified arms that we call tentacles. When you break down squid, it is like subdivisions. I'm right in saying they're decapodiforms, right? There are decapodiforms, which is a, a group of cephalopods, but not all decapodiforms are squids. Uh, there are other groups. Yeah, this is what I'm going to say, because I'm right in saying that the cuttlefish are in there with the squid, but then the vampire squids sit alongside the octopus, but are not either. Is that right? That's right. There's also a group called bobtails, which some people think of as cuttlefish, but some people call them stubby squids. It turns out they're not very closely related to what I just said was squids, the, uh, the oceanic and, and coastal squid groups. And then there's the vampire squid, which is actually more closely related to octopods, but it got the name vampire squid a long time ago and it's kind of stuck. <laughs> is that all it is? It's just the fact that these names have just stuck and you know is there anything you can do about that is it a, a big push for trying to resolve all this or is it just a case of ah, that's what they're called now so well every time i talk on something like this podcast i uh, i try to set the record straight but it doesn't seem to work <laughs> well you come to the right place now you know you've been on the deep sea podcast i'm sure it will change the world i'm looking forward to it yeah so obviously squid are massively diverse. I mean, they're, they're a really fascinating group. I mean, think about like the pygmy squid and the dumbos and the big fins and the colossals and all that kind of stuff. Is there a particular one that you find fascinating? Because we've all got our favorite kids, right? Yeah, but we're not supposed to. No, I know. But you, let's face it, we do. So of all the squid, which, which is the one you go to? Probably the, the big fin squid. It was a uh, an unknown up until 
just before 2000, uh, we, we uh, described a new family based on some babies. And then we finally got some videos of the, the grownups. And so around the change of the century, we started finding out about these really big and charismatic squids that live in the deep sea. And uh, a friend of mine from the University of Hawaii, Dick Young, and I described a new family based on all that. And now it, we're finding more and more records and we're finding more and more reasons that they're remarkable. So that's my favorite. So for the benefit of the audience, those are the ones that I think Tom was talking about them before. It's also the ones that we were talking about. We've just found the deepest one. That was a little juvenile one. But you know that classic image where you see the squid hanging mid-war and it just has these absolutely ridiculously long arms. It's the one that really creeps people out. Yeah, it's the way it's so motionless, right? Yeah, they, they sort of drift along and they've got, as I said before, the squids have eight arms and two tentacles. But on the big fin squid, you can't tell them apart because they're all the same. And they all have an elbow in the arm. And then from the elbow on out, it's a really long, skinny, spaghetti-like extension, which has microscopic suckers on it. And as they drift along, they have their arms spread out. And then these spaghetti-like extensions sort of hanging down from the elbows. And they're drifting along with these 10 pieces of spaghetti hanging underneath them, waiting for something to bump into them and, and stick to them. On top of that, they have this huge fin, which is where they get their name. So they're very bizarre looking and they get really big. Well, I say big. Big refers to the total length of the animal, including these ridiculous spaghetti-like extensions. The biggest one that I'm aware of so far was a estimated to be about 21 feet long, less than seven meters long. But uh, the body length on that was probably about a foot, a third of a meter. So how does it feed then? Like almost filtering, if it's assuming something comes in and swims within its arms. So does it grab it and then pull it up to its mouth? What a good question. We we don't know. Because it doesn't look like that would work particularly gracefully. Those extensions are not very muscular. Yeah. But we do know that with the microscopic suckers on them, they're very sticky. Because on occasion, the submersible videos have shown one bumping into a piece of the submersible and then the squid flaps its fins to try to get away and it can't seem to let go. It seems like when something sticks to it, it, it doesn't release very easily. But how it gets a piece of food from a long way away from its mouth stuck to one of these spaghetti-like things up to its mouth. We don't know. 20 feet away. So I'm I'm hoping that one of these submersible observations will show me how it does that. Is there still a a beak up there? Yeah, it does. It's Anatomically, it's it's like other oceanic squids. So yeah, it does have a a beak. It has to have a a beak because on cephalopods, the esophagus goes through the center of the brain. So they have to bite their food into little pieces or else they get a terrible headache. So on the subject of large squid, we're going to have to talk about giant and colossal squid. Yeah, everybody wants to do that. (laughs) Yeah. But of the ones I've seen in museums, I I must admit I'm almost slightly disappointed. Because I think when you you see these little infographics in newspapers and stuff like that, they always make them out to be absolutely massive. And then you get to see it and you realize it's not massive, it's kind of just long. Is there actually a reasonably good estimate of how big they truly get? Well, for a giant squid, which... When I say giant squid, I'm talking about the genus Architeuthis in the family Architeuthidae. But uh, for giant squid, most of the length is in the arms and tentacles, but they're still pretty big. The mantle length gets bigger than me, so I consider that to be a big squid. And then add to that the head and the arms and and so on. And they get get really big uh, in terms of length, but there's a controversy about how big they get. The early scientific reports, which were in the late 1800s, reported a specimen that was something like 
48 feet long. But since then, nobody's seen one that big. So there was a guy in New Zealand named Steve O'Shea who uh, was working on both giant squids, the Architeuthis, and another species that gets really big, which he named the Colossal Squid because he thought it was bigger than giant squids. And uh, Steve said that uh, since nobody's seen one that big since the 1800s, and we don't have a museum specimen from those early reports, that he didn't think that giant squids got that big, but that uh, these uh, colossal squids get really big too. And so it became a, my squid's bigger than your squid kind of argument. (laughs) I just found it interesting how the, the giant squid maintained its sort of fame based on how long it's sort of been known about and just how catchy that name is. Whereas the Colossal, it sort of seemed to supersede it in terms of being much more muscular, much more, it's got the hooks, it's, it seems a more aggressive predator, but it's the giant one that sticks in people's minds. They're probably both aggressive predators, which is normal for a squid. The hooks certainly look scary to a human, although I don't think any human would ever have to worry about either one of these species. The colossal squids don't get as long as the giant squids, but they have a bigger body mass to length ratio. So they probably get more massive than a giant squid, although not as long as a giant squid. But what really has kept giant squids in the popular imagination is Jules Verne, because he started out the idea that these are are sea monsters. And of course, people love the idea of sea monsters. I'm sure you guys get that a lot. Um, Jules Verne based his attack of the giant squid on an an actual account where a French ship had uh, encountered a giant squid at the surface and had tried to haul it aboard and couldn't. (laughs) He turned that into an attack on the sub, but it's not something that anybody would ever have to worry about because they live really, really deep. But we find them floating at the surface every once in a while because sperm whales feed on them. And sperm whales are really sloppy feeders. So it's not unusual to see dead squids at the surface in areas where sperm whales are feeding. I always find that quite surprising. Certainly when you're at sea and you're at night and you put the, the light into the sea and all the squid come along, you get a feel for just how fast normal squid, I'm not talking about giants here, but just normal squid, how fast they are and how maneuverable they are. It's just insane. And then you think of something as big as a sperm whale going for a giant squid, I would all just assume the giant squid could easily outmaneuver it. But apparently not, obviously not, because they keep finding beaks in their guts. So I, w- I, w- I would put my money on the giant squid getting away. Well, like you said, we... We know that the sperm whales are successful, and that's one of the things they focus on, not just Architeuthis, but any large squid generally deep in the water. Uh, They're good at it, and we know they hunt by making really loud noises. One thought is that the clicking, the, the really rapid, loud clicking that sperm whales do as they're approaching their prey might somehow incapacitate the giant squids. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. See, that, that would explain it, right? Because you just figured a squid with it, the first sign of trouble will just immediately turn and run. You would think so, yeah. And, you know, the idea behind why they have the largest eyes that we know about in living things anyway uh, is so that they can see stimulated bioluminescence by a sperm whale that's that's coming at them indicates that they want to see it and run away as soon as possible. Uh, obviously, the sperm whales are good at it. So sometimes you mentioned like Jules Verne and stuff like that. And uh, I think one of my things I'm interested in at the moment is to do with human perception of, of some of these animals, in particular deep sea. And then what is it about the squid that really gets people's attention? I mean, just the sheer number of news stories, it seems that whenever somebody films a squid, they immediately on the news because people will click on that. And it's weird because it's a body form that we shouldn't like. 
you know, humans don't like things like spiders because we can't relate to ourselves. It doesn't have a face you can look at. And we don't like snakes because they move in a way which is quite far removed from ourselves. And you look at the squid and it is equally as bizarre. But at the same time, kids have cuddly toys of squids, right? <laughs> you know, we, we've kind of... Yeah, squids are beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but it, it, they shouldn't be. They should be the stuff of nightmares, right? They're such a weird animal. Yeah, they're 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 way weirder than a lot of insects are. But you know, we, we don't put them in the same pigeonhole. So there's something really quite unique about the squid in that they shouldn't be loved the way they are, but they totally are. Yeah, squids and octopus also. Yeah, they're so bizarre, but they're also relatable because of their eyes and because of their intelligence and the fact that they are both weird looking and relatable, I think that that puts them into this alien category that really fascinates a lot of people. Like a friendly alien though. Yeah. A cuddly one. Yeah. You know, some of them are thought of as friendly aliens, like my octopus teacher special that was on Netflix, I think. Like we were saying, some of them are thought of as not being so friendly, like the Kraken that pulls down the sailing ship and eats everybody. So they have all these different aspects, but people love them. Every time anybody finds out that I work on cephalopods, their ears pick up and they of course the first thing they ask me about is giant squids. I'm all about the Dumbo now after last year's find, but I actually used that. I recently did a TEDx talk and one of the things I, I asked was, you know, picture in your mind what the deepest octopus in the world looks like. And you can sort of see people going, oh my God, you know, this is going to be horrendous. Almost like brace yourself for this, brace yourself, everyone. <laughs> this is the deepest octopus in the world. And then it just showed a video of this beautiful little Dumbo just dumboing around. Yeah, cute. And it's like this. <laughs> yeah, and everyone goes, ah. Oh. <laughs> and it's like yeah, it's, just, it's the size of a puppy and it's like this thing is thousands and thousands of meters on the water and there it is just like da, 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 just running around the seafloor being an octopus I love that I think yeah. there's so many examples of the deepest blah 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 just being ridiculously not frightening at all. Yeah, I got to say that one thing that's stoked that kind of interest has been uh, the in situ observations from submersibles and drop cameras and stuff like that. Because until we started seeing what they really looked like, then I don't think they had, particularly the deep sea stuff, didn't have as much interest to people. Well, there was less to relate to because I think a lot of these, you know, historically you'd go to the Natural History Museum or the Smithsonian or whatever, and you go to look at the deep sea section and you see this pickled fish or octopus and formalin with its skin all peeled back and it's sort of slightly deflated and it you know it looks horrid yeah uh, but that's that doesn't resemble how they look in life at all so yeah you're right i mean you just spoke about this before but the classic one is a blobfish that photograph going around yeah it's a terrible picture <laughs> <laughs> that's just not what a blobfish looks like yeah. but yeah another one's a goblin shark Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's freaky when it's dead. Yeah, but it just looks like a shark when it's swimming around. Yeah, it's just got a big nose. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that we like to talk about on this is throughout your career, you obviously come across various bits of research or observation and they get either published in scientific journals or hit the media, whatever it is. But falling through the cracks of science and media, what's the weirdest squid-related story that's happened in your career that you've never told anyone? Oh, Oh, that's a good, oh, that means there's lots. <laughs> I'd have to think about that for a while because I don't not tell people things. <laughs> right. you know, either it winds up as a, a publication in the scientific literature or a blog post for a dive record or something like that. So, I mean, there's still a lot of mysteries that we haven't figured out yet. So what, what is the next big thing? What is big thing in squid research that's lacking? This is not actually an answer to your question, but, you know, people ask me when we first discovered the big fin squid, am I going to start an expedition to go find one. I've heard the same thing about uh, giant squids. People 
beat their head against the giant squid question for years. I think that our technology is not good enough yet to focus on these. If I had to design an expedition to explore a question like, how does a big fin squid get the food from its, its arm extensions up to its mouth? You could waste a lot of time and money uh, on it that. It would not be a useful use of uh, scientific funding to put a, an expedition to do that. It'll be uncovered incidentally as people are exploring the deep sea. What I'm in favor of is broad concept exploration of the deep sea and see what we see. We don't know what we don't know yet. We've just been talking about that but it's a difference between like hypotheses-driven ecology versus observational, descriptive, natural history. Right. And but before you can really do hypothesis-driven ecology, you've got to know the system pretty well yeah. in order to come up with reasonable hypotheses that can be tested. And in the deep sea, we're still at the exploratory stage. I think the deeper you go, the more you end up just, there's a thing, there's a thing. <laughs> right. There's a yeah. thing. I mean, in terms of controlled experiments, they're still hundreds of years away. Yeah. And, and when you see there's a thing, then you've got to find the person that would know the most about that thing to tell you how interesting it is. Exactly. Yeah. So the question from my 10-year-old son, Matthew, so he's quite big in the squid Good. and deep sea animals generally. Uh, that's not my doing either. He seems blissfully unimpressed that I've just published a paper on the deepest squid in the world, which is quite heartbreaking. But he's very excited that I'm talking to you. So his question is, how does it make the ink and how long does it take to refill its ink sac after it's inked? Those are two really good questions. It's got a gland where it, it secretes melanin, which is just a really dark chemical. And that gland secretes the melanin into an ink sac where it's mixed with mucus. And then when it gets upset about something and it wants to put out ink, it actually squirts from that ink sac into its intestine and goes out with the digestive waste out through the end of the intestine, and which actually goes out into the body of the squid. It mixes with water there and then goes out through the funnel because that's how squids breathe and also how they swim with jet propulsion. And so it can produce different kinds of consistencies of the ink based on different uses. So one thing that can do is make a what's called a pseudomorph, the same size and shape as the squid. And a squid can produce one of these pseudomorphs. And before it does that, it'll turn its whole body dark by expanding all its chromatophores. And then it will jet away, but leave this blob of dark ink that's the same size and shape as the squid behind. And at the same time it jets away, it contracts all this chromatophores. So the whole body, instead of being really dark, becomes sort of transparent. And so a predator going for that dark squid will instead go for the pseudomorph left behind by the squid while it swims away. That's one way that it uses the ink. And another way is it can also mix it with a whole lot more water and mucus and, and form a cloud. And we're finding out more and more that oceanic squids will make a cloud and then they'll come back and hide in that cloud. They'll, they'll actually go into the cloud and, and go motionless in it, which is sort of like when an octopus produces what people refer to as a smoke screen. It's like climbing into your own shadow. The other part of the question was, how long does it take to refill? And it's really hard to get a cephalopod to run out of ink. They've done experiments with cuttlefish where they just bothered them over and over again. And the cuttlefish will ink over and over and over again. It's really difficult to get it to run out of ink. It doesn't take very much of that ink to make a blob of ink. Oh, okay. I'll tell him that. He'll be happy. All right. To finish up, we've already got the deepest octopus now, or we think, and the deepest squid. What's the deepest cuttlefish? Where can I go find that? Well, Falcor just saw some. The research vessel was diving with its sub, Sebastian, in the Coral Sea, and they saw some at almost 700 meters down. There are reports of 
around that depth, maybe as much as a thousand meters, but they have a problem because they've got a gas-filled cuddle bone. If they go too deep, the gas will compress and the cuddle bone will implode. As far as depth records, I really trust the submersible records much more than the trawling records for depth. So I'm guessing somewhere around seven, 800 meters might be as deep as a, a cuttlefish can go. And it depends on the species of cuttlefish. Brilliant. Fascinating stuff. Tom, you get anything that you want to bring into this? If Mike feels anything is sort of missed by the general public, if there's any massive misconceptions that drive him mad, anything that he feels more people need to know about. <laughs> what drives me mad is when I've uh, tried to set something straight and I keep running into the same misconception <laughs> over and over again. I think that's just deep sea in general. Yeah, though. that feels familiar. But but I actually, I've thought of an answer to your previous question about what I would like to see from the deep sea. One thing that really raises my curiosity is on these uh, ram's horn squids that the spirula that have an internal chambered shell. They're often found around islands and places like that. So we are guessing that they lay their eggs on the bottom, but we actually don't know that. Uh, we have no idea how ram's horn squid lays its eggs, whether it holds its egg masses in its arms like we were surprised to find some squids do, or whether it deposits its eggs on the bottom in what we call bathyal depths around islands and around the edges of continents. And I would like really like to know more about the in situ biology of those ram's horn squids. When someone says something like that, I just keep going into how you would do it. Yeah, I, I don't. Again, I don't think you <laughs> could difficult, isn't it? plan an expedition to answer that question. I, I think I think you just have to wait until somebody stumbles. Yeah, somebody will. We'll find it accidentally. A lot of the interesting squid sightings are coming from oil and gas industry as well, aren't they? Because it's just the number of ROVs in the water. And yeah, the first sighting of an, an adult big fin squid came from the oil and gas industry. Did it? Yeah. It's an incredible resource that just the sheer number of hours they're filming in the war. Oh, yeah. And every industry ROV pilot you talk to will, will whip out the thumb drive and be like, these are my best bits. These are my weird things. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah. It was great. There were things like the Serpent Project that tapped into that, yeah. linked them up with scientists because they've all got their greatest hits. They've all got the, the weird thing they saw. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of good observations from the Serpent Project. Wonderful. My favorite take home from all that is thinking about a giant squid being incapacitated by a sonic head ray from a sperm Possibly, you know, that's speculation. No, no, no. it's real. It, no, yeah. no, 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 it's yeah. fact now. It's fact now. That's <laughs> definitely a thing. It's probably got laser sights as well. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much, Mike. That's absolutely fascinating. Oh, I'm glad you asked me. No, it's been a long time coming. I think we, we should have had you on before. And we'll do a part two at some point in the future when we'll get to talk about octopus. Discover something else that I can play with and then we can talk about it. Well, I was going to go for the deepest cuttlefish, but if it's only 700 meters then. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's less than a thousand. We don't get a bed for 4,000. It's still deep yeah. sea though. It's more than 200. Nah, it's not. It's not deep sea unless it's 5,000 meters. Oh, it's funny you mentioned that because <laughs> when I when I started doing the deep sea work, I thought anything deeper than 200 was really interesting. And now I think if it's less than 1,000, it's sort of boring. I thought 1,000 meters was a good mark because you're beyond the influence of sunlight. And a lot of the stuff that happens and a lot of the adaptations you see are direct results of diminished light levels. And that probably explains more of what's going on there than depth does per se. It's more to do with, with light. But beyond a thousand meters, you're down to more of a similar environment. I've been doing a lot of work in the Gulf of Mexico and before that on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, looking at the mesopelagic, which is between 200 and a thousand general, and the bathypelagic, which is deeper than a thousand. And I used to think of them as being 
completely separate, basically a floorboards in between them. And it turns out there's a lot more bleed over between the two depth ranges than I originally thought of. Uh, a thousand is a good justifiable changeover, but it's not as hard and fast as I would like it to be. <laughs> But at the same time, these, these are all just imaginary lines that we draw to make our terminology more convenient, right? Ultimately, there is no line anywhere. 200 meters seems awfully shallow. It's the edge of the shelf break. It's the bottom of the epipelagic, the euphotic zone, where there's enough sunlight for photosynthesis. It's also this changeover between the, the seasonal mixing and the permanent thermocline. So that there's a lot of reason for 200 meters. I just think what happens at 201 meters bears no resemblance to what happens at 10,900 meters, but they're all collectively known as the deep sea. I think some of the, not damage, but some of the, the bad reputation the deep sea has in terms of how much generally people care about it is, is when you draw that line and you say, this is sea, this is deep sea. It's almost you saying, this is the bit which is useful and valuable to us, and this is the bit that we don't care about. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's actually scientists who have drawn that line have called the top half of the water good sea yeah. and the bottom half of the water bad sea. For a lot of public, the, the deep sea is when you're out of sight of land. Yeah. That's another one I hear quite a lot as well, yeah. I would call it open ocean. Right. We've already talked today that the, the word squid doesn't mean anything anyway, so terminology. Huh? Squid don't even exist. All right, Mike, thanks very much. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Again, I appreciate the uh, interest. was a pressurized version of one of our longer episodes. If you enjoyed that and you would like to hear the full length episode, just match the episode numbers and you'll be able to find the full length version in the feed. Thanks for listening. We'll deep see you next time and I abyss you already. On the ride with the